Hey, Reach Paramount, welcome to our podcast. Hey, this message is from night two of our Reach Conference 2021 with Pastor Eddie Vargas of Restoration Life Church. Enjoy this message. God bless you. You may be seated. Wow, what a tremendous, tremendous honor to be here uh, with my family because this is my family. I grew up in this ministry. I was discipled in this ministry. I was restored in this ministry. And I was released from this ministry. And it's so good to be here with family. And tonight, before I go any further, I have to give honor where honor is due. I just, I just need to honor my, my pastor, my spiritual father. I, I need to honor uh, Pastor Omar and Sister Leti Lopez. We honor you. We love you. We're so grateful for you. I've never, I've never in my life ever known such gracious leadership. Just tremendous leadership. I also just want to honor the executive team from the Reach Network and all the pastors. Thank you for the blessing and the honor to be here with you. Um, I do also have to give honor um, to the most beautiful woman on the planet, my wife, Roxanne. Thank you for dressing me tonight. This outfit has been brought to you by Roxanne Vargas. She's my ride or die, and uh, I just honor you and my daughter, Justine, my family, and of course, I, I have the privilege of leading one of the most dynamic churches on the planet, Restoration Life Family Fellowship. We love you. So privileged by you. I'm so grateful to be here. I just, there's so much emotion attached to this evening because this is the culmination of vision being planted and God watering it and God breathing life over it. And now we're getting to reap some of the harvest of it. And it's just a tremendous blessing to be here to see all of the collaboration and the synergy in this place. We are the church of God. We are the church. We don't go to church. We are the church. And tonight, my assignment is to talk about part of our vision statement. Diga, of course crushed it last night with reach, right? We need to reach the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I don't think that there is a stronger evangelist in our movement than Niger Hernandez. So we're very proud and honored by his ministry and his wisdom. And tonight I'm going to talk to you about restore. And uh, as I think about that word restore, there are a lot of things that come to mind which is the second part of our vision statement, right? To reach, to restore. But I want to bring your attention to a portion of Scripture. And I love the Word of God. I love to share God's Word. And I, and I use a lot of Scripture in every message that I preach because I believe the Bible can preach better than anybody else on the planet. And tonight, I, I want to just... just just share a portion of scripture with you and then we're going to jump around in the Old Testament and the New Testament because I believe God's given me a word for this conference. God's given us a, God, God's given me a word for this network and man, I've travailed over this word and uh, I, I love to overstudy things to be fully prepared. Um, but there is a word that is in the book of Psalms chapter 23 and it's a psalm of King David. And in this psalm, David King David, the same David that took out Goliath, the same David that was a man after God's own heart, the same David that messed up royally and found himself in a bad situation, he writes this psalm and it just resonates with my soul and it resonates, I believe, with our movement. And the Bible says in Psalms 23, 1 and 3, it says, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lay down in green pastures and he leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. 
and he leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Would you bow your head with me as we go before the Lord just one more time in prayer? Heavenly Father, I thank you for your living word. We know that it's sharper than any two-edged sword. We understand that it is alive, that your son Jesus is the very manifestation of this word that we'll be speaking through tonight. And I pray, God, that you would speak deep down into every believer's heart, that you would do something fresh and new in all of our lives tonight as we pursue the upward call and fulfilling our purpose and destiny as sons and daughters of heaven. Holy Spirit, we give you dominion. This is your house. This is your room. We are your sons. We are your daughters. We are your family. We are your bride. And we say, speak, for your servants are listening. We thank you for this in Jesus' name. And everybody said, come on, give God one more big hand of praise tonight. You know, the Bible is a very interesting love story. In fact, it's a very adventurous and beautiful love story from the beginning all the way through the end. And as I said to you earlier tonight that my assignment is to minister on the second part of our vision statement, restore, and unpack what it means when God restores. And you could actually see the process of restoration taking place all throughout Scripture in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. Now, the word restoration is not an uncommon word. It's a word that we use in our vocabulary throughout you know, humanity. It's not like the word anointing or sanctified or Shekinah glory. These are not common words used in everyday life, but the word restore is something that we use commonly in our everyday vocabulary. And it's an interesting word because this word has a lot to say in the world, but God has a lot to say even more throughout Scripture. In actuality, the world has its own definition of the word restore. Webster's defines it. I think that they might put that up for you to see. To return someone or something back to a former condition, place, or condition. This is the world's definition of restore. To return someone or something back to its former condition, place, or position to repair or to renovate, to build a home, a work of art, to fix a, or to repair a work of art, to restore a motorcycle or a car so as to return it back to its original condition. And I don't know about you, but I love watching shows about restoration. I love, but Roxanne and I can binge watch on shows that, that take an old house that had been dilapidated by by weathering and, and, and termite damage and water damage and to see a couple come in and restore it back to its original condition. It is a beautiful process. I love watching cars to be restored, original classics being restored. I, I used to love to work on cars and to restore them and motorcycles and see them restore as of late. Uh, me and a number of our friends that are in this place, Hector Brasino, we, we, we love to restore boats. We love to buy boats, restore them, use them, and then sell them. And so we love the restoration process of it. We, 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 we love the process of restoration. We, we love to take something that was damaged and put it back to its original condition. And that is the definition of the world's um, idea of the word uh, to restore. But God's definition of restoration is a bit differently than the world's definition of the word restore. And so to unpack this understanding, I want to look at the book of Luke. And I want you to see and hear what Jesus has to say. And then we're going to go back into the Old Testament to find out why the world ended up in the condition that we find it in today. 
In Luke chapter 19, verse 10, out of the New King James translation, the Bible says, For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. I love the message translation. It says this, For the Son of Man came to find and to restore the lost. So the question that we have to ask ourselves tonight Exactly what was lost? What was lost that needed restoration? What was lost that needed to be put back to this original condition? And what I want you to see with me tonight is the first point that I want to kind of elaborate on. I'm going to take a little bit of time elaborating on this because I want you to get the full impact of why it's so important that this is a part of our vision statement as the REACH Network. The first thing that I want you to recognize with me tonight is that intimacy with the Father was lost. Intimacy with the Father was lost. Intimacy in any relationship requires the ability and the intentionality of living in pure truth with one another. Adam and Eve would make one bad decision that would destroy the intimacy that they had with their creator. I've said this before, and I'll say it again. You and I are only one bad decision from ruining intimacy with our father, intimacy with our spouses, intimacy with our church family, intimacy with our biological family. We are just one bad decision from messing it up royally. Adam and Eve would destroy that with just one bad decision. Everybody in this room knows the story, but I think we need to go back to it just a little bit to understand the power of the process of God's restoration over humanity. Genesis chapter 3, verse 6 through 13, the Bible says, When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, She took some and ate, and she also gave it to her dumb, idiotic husband. (laughs) That's the EV translation. (laughs) Who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized that they were naked. And so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Look at somebody and tell them they covered themselves. They covered themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of day. And they hid from the Lord God amongst the trees in the garden. But the Lord God called out to the man and he said, where are you? And the man answered, I heard you in the garden. And I was afraid because I was naked and I hid. I was afraid because I was naked And I hid. Now for the very first time in Adam and Eve's existence, they recognized their nakedness. They were afraid for the very first time in their existence. They experienced fear. And in response to their nakedness and and their fear, they ran and they hid from God. Now say it with me because we're going somewhere. So in verse 9, the Bible says, but the Lord God called to the man, where are you? He said, I, was, I heard you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked. So I hid and he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I've commanded you not to eat from? And the man said, this woman that you put here with me, this wicked woman, She gave me some of the fruit from the tree and I ate it. And the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the Lord God said, the man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and also take from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. And he drove the man out and he placed on the east side of the garden of Edom a cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree 
of life. And we understand that Eve was cursed, that in pain and with blood, she would give birth to children. And from the sweat of Adam's brow, he would work all the days of his life. From the dust he came and from the dust he will return. Now God created Adam and Eve in his image and he made them to be immortal. He made them perfect. He made them so good that they would spend all eternity in intimate relationship with the Father. But just one decision to disobey his word caused them to lose eternity and intimacy with the Father. Just one bad decision. And while we understand that God still loves Adam and Eve and he had communion with them and and, and in their sin, we understand that this caused division and separation from relationship. It was no longer the same again. Sin birthed shame. Sin birthed fear. And would cause Adam and Eve to go into self-isolation away from the presence of God. Adam, while hiding, said, I heard you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked and I hid. It's an interesting word in the Hebrew, that word hid. The Hebrew word for hid is actually the word chava. And it literally means to be forced into hiding. And so what the Bible is teaching us tonight is that because of Adam's disobedience, for the very first time he experiences shame, he experiences fear, and now he is forced into hiding. It drove him away from the presence of God, and it drove him away from the intimacy of God. But why would Adam and Eve for them, force themselves into hiding? Well, remember with me what the Bible says in Genesis chapter 2, verse 25. Now the man and his wife were both naked, but they felt no shame. Neither one of them ever had anything sinister to hide from one another. There were no barriers to God glorifying intimacy. They had nothing to hide from each other and they had nothing to hide from God. It, it, it's, it's like having, you remember when you had you know, those, those toddlers that were little and they were so innocent and, and they would be naked and they would just take off around the house. And they would just be like looking at you like, like I remember when my grandsons did this. Right? They, they, they just get up and, and for whatever reason, they just took off their clothes and they would just run around the house. And, and, and now they're, you know, the other day I found Jack's like with just butt naked in our pool, just playing in the pool. <laughs> he doesn't understand fear and shame of his nakedness because he's not sinister yet. But there's this innocence in our children when they're little. Like I, I remember looking at pictures of me and my, my cousins and my brothers or my sister and my cousins back in Brooklyn, New York. And there was actually a, a picture of all of us, like six of us in a small tub. And we were all butt naked and we were like two, three years old. And, and it was just so innocent. Now today, I don't think anybody would do that. Just because of the moral decline of our society. Because it's getting more and more wicked, right? And yet this was very innocent back then. You would, you would take, get up and, and run outside of the house and, and, and everybody would be laughing and chasing after you and it'd be like a, a fun thing to run around the house naked when you were a little kid. But there was nothing sinister or evil in that. There was no shame in that. You didn't even know that you were naked. And so this is the kind of innocence that was in the garden but even beyond that it's it, we can't even imagine the realm of innocence as adults yet at this moment there was no sin in the world and there was no shame no guilt no fear no separation they lived in holy and pure intimacy with their creator but the pollution of human nature resulting from the fall created all kinds of opportunities for sin to drive God's creation into forced hiding from his presence. 
knowing their new potential to inflict harm on one another and feeling deep existent, existential shame, Adam and Eve tried to hide them, their nakedness from each other so they, they will no further damage their own immorality. But they take the shame a step further. They conceal themselves from the Father and God never designed them to be concealed from Him. They fashion their own covering over their own nakedness. And it becomes blasphemous to God because God created them in his image. And they were covering the image that he created them in because of their sin, because of their shame, because of their fear. And so they were forced into hiding themselves, not just from each other, but from God. And instead of casting themselves on the mercy of the creator, because they didn't even know what mercy was because they never needed it. They escaped the presence from the only one who could overcome their shame for them. They don't put their hope in, their, in his mercy. They were never in need of it, but rather looked for the darkness to hide in. And here we are today, and we're still hiding from God. We still hide ourselves from God as human beings. So I ask again, why would Adam and Eve force themselves into hiding? Because God's holiness would demand pure and holy intimacy. You can't be in the presence of a holy God being unholy. And so confidence to approach the Father was lost because intimacy with the Father was lost. Let me bring you some uh, clarity to intimacy. Let me just start by saying what intimacy isn't. Intimacy is not transparency. Transparency is what I let you see. So transparency is not intimacy. Transparency is what I let you see. Intimacy is not vulnerability. Vulnerability is what I let you know. But I still get to keep back anything that I don't want you to know. Intimacy is not accountability. Accountability is what I let you hold. It's what I license you to hold. Hey, hold me to this. This is what I want to do. I want to be accountable over you. I want you to be accountable over me. Hold me to this. But intimacy, intimacy is different. Intimacy is when I have absolutely nothing to hide from you. That's true intimacy. And so what was lost in the garden? Intimacy with the Father. Luke 18, 17, Jesus said, For nothing is hidden that will not be made manifest, nor is anything secret that will not be known and be brought to light. Look at somebody and tell them, you can't hide anything from God. And I don't know who needs to hear this tonight. But the motivation of God's confrontation is restoration. And so God will confront you in your sin, not to harm you, but to restore you. And so God's motivation for confronting our sin, for confronting our mess, for confronting the things that we don't want to show anybody, his motivation is restoration. And yet we still run and hide from God as if he doesn't already know what you've done. As if he already didn't know from the very beginning of time what you would do with your life. Our God is omniscient. He's om omnipotent, right? God knows everything from beginning to end. He doesn't live within the scope of time. He lives outside of the scope of time. And he could see it from the very beginning to the very, be to the very end and all throughout eternity. God is not shocked when you mess up. Your pastor might be. Your spouse might be. In fact, she probably will be. Your husband might be. Your children might be. But God is not shocked. God has never caught off guard with what you try to hide from him. 
And so God allows us to be confronted in many different areas of our life because he wants to confront our sin because his motivation for confrontation is restoration. And in restoring us, listen to this, and we need to hear this clearly, and in restoring us, his priority was not to heal us, although that will happen. What do you mean? I, I, I thought that to restore us was to put us back to our original condition. The problem with humanity is that our original condition is to be in sin. And so when God sent Jesus, he didn't come to heal us so that you can go to hell healthy. You need to catch this. Because when we think of God's restoration power, when we think God restoring us, we think he's going to heal us. And listen, being in a relationship with God, the byproduct of being and having an intimate relationship with the Father is that yes, he can and yes, he will heal us. Yes, he can heal our marriages. And I believe that there's no marriage that's too far God that God cannot restore. But I have to make this point clear. God did not save you to heal your marriage. Now some of you are not going to like this, but that's okay. Stick with me. His priority isn't to heal us, although that will happen. His priority wasn't to bless us with a better life, a better wife, better kids, a better business, even though that can and will happen. His priority wasn't to give us better husbands. <laughs> Listen, you can have a better marriage with the same husband. But his priority wasn't to give you a husband, a wife. He wasn't like, man, I need to save Eddie because I need to get Roxanne a husband. That wasn't his priority. That wasn't God's priority for my salvation. His priority was never to give us a thriving business, his church, a, a church to belong to, a team to be a part of, although many of us can and have experienced all of that. His priority was never to give us talents to be used or ministries to build, although that has happened and will continue to happen. Jesus didn't leave heaven, amen, to give you a thriving business. He didn't leave heaven to give you a family. He didn't leave heaven to give you anything but his presence. That is his priority. And I love that God heals. I love that God heals because Jesus left heaven to seek and to save, to rescue and redeem, to reconcile and restore us, to reach us with confrontational truth. Come on. We live in a world where truth is subjective to whatever the media says. To whatever woke Christianity says. Come on, woke Christianity needs to go back to sleep and wake up on the right side of Scripture. Because God came to confront us in our sin. To heal us. But not in the way the world says he's going to heal us. With all actuality, he confronted us in our sin to restore us back to himself. And so he, he reaches out with us, to us with confrontational truth. He reaches out to us with mercy to restore us with grace. In fact, Paul the Apostle writes to the church in Ephesus in Ephesians chapter 2 verse 8. He says, for it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. And this is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Aren't you glad that God didn't come looking for people that had it all together? Aren't you glad that God didn't look for you and said, man, I don't know if they got enough money in the bank for me to restore them. God didn't look at you and said, hey, listen, I, I, I think I could use you at some point of future in your life, but I need to heal you and I need to restore you. I need to get you a wife. I need to get you into a church and I need to get you into a network. And then I'm going to deposit spiritual gifts on you and I'm going to, I'm going to blow the Holy Spirit on you. You're going to, you're going to be endued with power and then you're going to manifest these gifts in your ministry. God didn't do all of that for all of that. 
Jesus and his finished work on the cross restores access to the Father. Access that was lost in the garden. And I don't think many of us understand how powerful this truth is because Jesus not only gave us access to the most holy place, we became his most holy place. And we, 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 we don't even fathom this because in the Old Testament, when you think about God setting up a cherubim with flaming swords, basically like lightsabers saying, you are not allowed to enter this place anymore. He banished them from the intimacy of his presence with them. Never again would they walk with God in the cool of day. Never again would they walk with God in the intimacy and the purity, uh, uh, purity of their holiness because they covered themselves with something that, that, that disfigured what he created them to be. In the Old Testament, only kings, priests, and prophets were able to enter into the presence of God. Only the Levitical priesthood was able to enter into the presence of God. Prophets like, like Moses were able to enter into the presence of God. Leaders like Joseph were able to enter into the presence of God. Men like Elijah and Elisha were able to experience the presence of God's kings. Like David were able to hear from heaven and be in relationship with the father. King Solomon was able to be in the presence of God and God would speak to him. And as he consecrated the temple, God said, I will be in this place as long as you hold to my word. But in the New Testament, God did something radical. God gave access to the whosoevers of this world. So now it wouldn't just be kings and priests and prophets, but whosoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And God seals us with his presence. God empowers us with his anointing. And now we are carriers as digger rights of his glory. And that never happened before. That was just for the Old Testament leadership. But we would see that God would pour out his spirit on sons and daughters. And they would prophesy and speak in other languages and speak in a heavenly language. That's why the Bible says in Hebrews 4.16, Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace and to help in time of need. The Bible says that you and I are a chosen people, a royal priesthood. How is that even possible? We're Gentiles, like 99% of us. We're Gentiles. We've been grafted into the family of God. We've been grafted into this intimacy. But the only one who can make a way for us to be back into an intimate place, into an intimate relationship with God, was Jesus Christ the Son. Listen, that's why the Bible says in 1 John 4, 17, it says, so love has been perfected among us in this, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment, because as he is, so are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. But wait a minute. In the garden... Fear forced them into hiding, but God's love would cast out the spirit of fear and catapult them back into the presence of God. The Bible continues to say there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear because fear involves torment. But he who fears has not been made perfect in love. We love him because he first loved us. I love the presence of God. I believe that the presence of God is the most important pursuit in our lives. Because without the presence of God, we are nothing. And in the presence of God, there is freedom. There is liberality. There is generosity. Come on. The call of God is found in the presence of God, And I can still remember the very first time I heard the gospel of Jesus Christ and responded to the gift of grace that Jesus and his finished work on the cross provided for me. I could still remember like it was 
Yesterday, when I heard the gospel, I raised my hand. I came down to this little altar in a small Pentecostal church in Hawthorne, led by pastors David and Esther Hernandez. And I heard the gospel for the very first time. And I said, here I am, I God, I'm jacked up. And I had nothing to hide from him. I was naked. Spiritually speaking, naked before God. And in the, and in my nakedness, He reached down and restored me. And not only restored me, but made me a son. And not just a son, but He anointed me. And not only did He anoint me, but He called me. Not only did He call me, He filled me with purpose. And that happened in one moment. In the very presence. Of the intimacy that I experienced with the Father. Psalm 16, 11 says, You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand there are pleasures forevermore. Reach conference, we serve a God of restoration. We serve a God of restoration. But remember with me tonight that he doesn't put someone back to their original state. Because God defines to restore differently. Let me share with you what the Bible's definition of restoration is. What God's definition of restoration is. To receive back more than has been lost to the point to where the final state is greater than the original condition. Listen. He saved you and he didn't put you, he didn't just heal you and put you back to your original state or your original condition. He made you better than you ever were. And he made you better because his presence is on you. His power is on you. His gifting came on you. His purpose came on you. You couldn't do it for yourself. You couldn't pay for it. You couldn't work for it. You couldn't be good enough for it. But by the grace and the mercy of Jesus. He made you better than you ever were and you'll ever be because your condition is not only new, but you've been born again. You're a new creation and you're better today than you ever were coming out of your mama's womb. God defines to restore differently than the world does. And so when we see somebody come into our churches and they're all jacked up because they've been beat up by their brokenness and the sin that they decided to commit and they come into the house, God doesn't just say, boom, no more addiction, you're good, but you're still going to hell. No, he heals you and he restores you and he sets you free. But in that freedom, you experience an intimacy back to the Father. That's how God defines restore. And so when you really take a really good look at this, God's motivation for salvation is restoration. He didn't restore you or he didn't save you to heal you. He saved you to restore you. Back to himself. That, that was his motive. And so what was lost? Intimacy with the Father. Secondly, I want to look at a story where intimacy is restored. One of my favorite stories in the Bible is a story of a woman who was dealing with the curse that Eve had because of her sin. And this is the curse that was distributed to all of women throughout all of humanity. And this woman was a woman that would be hemorrhaging for over 12 years, she'd gone to all the doctors. She'd gone to all the healers. She'd spend all her money. She didn't have anything left. She was desperate. She was broken. And based on the Levitical law, the Bible declares that she was unclean because of this hemorrhaging of blood that was spewing from her. And so this woman found herself in isolation because she couldn't, she couldn't be around anyone. She'd have to cry out as she walked in her village, unclean, unclean, because she was ceremonially unclean. She couldn't touch anyone, so she couldn't be in relationship with anyone. More than likely, she wasn't married. 
She probably didn't have children. The scripture's not clear, but it, it doesn't say that she did. She was in isolation because of her uncleanliness. She was in isolation because for her to touch someone else would make them ceremonially unclean, and it could cost her her life. They could literally drag her to the front of the village, dig a ditch about waist deep and stone her to death for causing other people to become ceremonially unclean. And so she lived in forced isolation away from everyone. Is everybody tracking with me? She was broke. The Bible's very clear. She didn't have any more money to spend. She probably was extremely desperate. She couldn't be, have any kind of intimacy. If she had a husband, he probably divorced her because she was ceremonially unclean. She couldn't give him any children. He couldn't, she, she couldn't give him a legacy. This woman probably had anxiety and depression. And the thing about this is that she couldn't even go to the temple and worship God. She couldn't go to the temple and sacrifice in the temple on behalf of her sin because she couldn't enter the temple ceremonially unclean. So here we see the life of a woman that was living in fear, anxiety, depression, and isolation away from anyone's touch, away from intimacy with the Father and intimacy with humanity. This is where this woman finds herself, and this is a representation of humanity today. In Luke chapter 8, verse 43, the Bible says, a woman in the crowd who had suffered for 12 years with constant bleeding, she could find no cure. Coming up behind Jesus, she touched the fringe of his robe. And immediately the bleeding stopped. Immediately the bleeding stopped. And when the bleeding stops, something powerful happens. Now you got to get the picture. She wasn't allowed to be out in public. She wasn't allowed to touch anyone. But Jesus is walking through the neighborhood. And everybody's talking about the miracle worker. Everybody's talking about Jesus the Christ. Everybody's talking about the Messiah. Everybody's talking about the healer. And guess what? A lot of people came to be healed. A lot of people came to get a blessing. A lot of people came to get a word. A lot of people came to be the chismosos. ¿Qué pasó? Who's, who's Jesus? He's the Messiah. He's the healer. He's the redeemer. And I have to, I have to guess that this woman in, the, in her desperation hears about this healer, hears about this rabbi, hears about this man of God who has the capacity and the power to heal anyone that he puts his hands on. And the Bible says that she breaks through the multitude of people that she, she squirms her way through people. And the Bible says that she said to herself, if I could just touch the hem of his garment, if I could just touch the hem of his garment, the fringe of his garment, I can be healed. It's a powerful story. Because in this moment, Jesus stops And he's like, who touched me? Jesus asked everyone, who touched me? And the disciples are like, Jesus, everybody's touching you. Like everybody, everybody's reaching out to get something from you. Everybody wants something from you. And you're like asking who touched me? And Jesus is like, yeah. Like I feel a lot of people around me but somebody's touch was different than everybody else's. You see that there are a lot of people, can I just say this? There are a lot of people that, that are in proximity of Jesus, but they'll never really be touched by Jesus. But there were a lot of people that are in proximity, but only one was touched. And the one that was touched wasn't the one that was healed but was the one that would do all the healing. When Jesus came to heal us, 
He wasn't after healing our bodies. He was after restoring our soul. In Titus chapter 3, verse 5, the Bible says that he saved us not because of the righteous things that we had done, but because of his mercy. He washed away our sins, giving us a new birth and a new life through the Holy Spirit. Listen, there is a difference in being, there is a difference between being around Jesus and being with Jesus. There is a difference being around Christians and being a Christian. There's a difference between being at a conference event and being at Jesus, with Jesus. There's a difference between being around leaders in the church and being with Jesus because you can be in proximity of Jesus and everything that Jesus is doing and still not be with Jesus. I love this story. Because when your faith moves you from a place of proximity to intimacy, your life is transformed and changed forever. This woman represents the lost. She represents the broken. She represents the abandoned. She represents the spiritual and psychological condition of our world today. She was in desperate need of a healer and tried everything the world offered and yet the world left her to die. Jesus said, somebody deliberately touched me. You know that word touched in the Greek means to cling to. It means to hold fast. It means to adhere yourself to. And so when this woman fought through the crowd, she didn't just reach out to touch the hem like the hem of a garment like we would think. She went and reached out to touch something that was far greater than I think any of us will ever understand. This is called a talent. Many of us understand it as a prayer shawl. But rabbis would cover themselves with this prayer shawl and they would remove all the distraction of the world and they would go into this secret place and find themselves covered by the very presence and intimacy of God. And this prayer shawl was something that was designed by the priesthood, actually designed by God to remind the priesthood of his promises. And on the end of this talent are what we would consider in America tassels. But this is what a fringe would be. And there were four fringes on the prayer shawl. This would be something that Jesus would be walking around with. And so when she reached out to touch the hem of his garment, he, she wasn't reaching out to touch clothing. Because every tassel represented a promise of God. Every tassel represented the word of God over God's people. And so when she reached out to touch, it wasn't just a touch, but she reached out to adhere herself to the promises of God. She reached out to hold on to God's promises that I will never leave you and I will never forsake you and I will always be with you. And so when she reached out to touch the hem of the garment of Jesus, she was literally reaching out to touch and adhere herself to the promises of the most high God, the very manifestation of the word of God incarnate in Jesus. Jesus said this woman's touch was different than everybody else's. You see, she, she said to herself, if I could just touch him, he can heal me. If I could just touch him, my life will be changed forevermore. If I could just touch him, I could have a family. If I could just touch him, I can go to the temple and worship. If I can touch him, I won't be suicidal. If I could just touch him, I, I, I won't be depressed anymore. If I could touch him, I could have children. If I could touch him, I could be set free. If I could just touch him. And what's so powerful about touching the hem of his garment is that Jesus responds to her faith with power. And what does he do? This is so good. 
In Luke chapter 8, verse 47, the woman realized that she could not stay hidden because power left the Messiah and went into her and she was completely healed. And Jesus says, everybody stop. Who touched me? Like if they know it was me, they're going to kill me because I'm unclean. If they know it's me, they're going to ridicule me. They're going to stone me to death. If they know that it was me, they're going to they're going to deepen my isolation if they know that it was me. I'll never heal from this. But Jesus calls her to testify of her healing. He says this, when the woman realized that she could not stay hidden. You see, in the garden, Adam and Eve were forced into hiding. But God's healing miracle power forces you out of darkness and into his marvelous light and he says who touched me and she began to tremble and fell to her knees in front of him the word the whole crowd heard her explain why she had touched him and that she had been immediately healed and then God does something intimate he doesn't leave her physically healed the very next word in the scripture says daughter daughter you've been you've been made well you're not a stranger to me anymore daughter you're a part of my family daughter you have an inheritance daughter you're going to heaven daughter you're going to live in peace daughter you have a future my plan for your life is going to come to fruition daughter I'm pouring out my spirit on you daughter I've got something better for you than this world has for you daughter you're going to be with me in all of eternity God restores intimacy lost in the garden Jesus restores on the cross so we lost intimacy but Jesus restores intimacy but I know that this is a conference filled with Christians and maybe some people here that are unbelievers that you, you were like what is this all about I gotta go check this out and so maybe you're you're here and you're not born again. You don't have a relationship with God. This is all brand new to you. I'm so glad that you're here. We're so honored by you being here tonight, if that's you. God loves you so much that he wasn't willing that anyone would perish in their sin. And so he gave us his very best through his son, Jesus Christ. Not to just heal us from brokenness and broken hearts and broken finances and broken relationships, but he came to restore us back to himself so that we could spend eternity with him. And I understand this is a room filled of, of ministers and leaders and pastors and churches. Can I just, in closing, tell you what else God restores? God is in the restoration business of leaders. God is in the business of restoring broken Christians. God is in the business of restoring the call back to your life that he placed on you when he called you out of darkness. There's this beautiful story. We all know some of the, one of the biggest loudmouth disciples Jesus ever had. And I'm not talking about me. I'm talking about Peter. Peter was a fisherman. You know the story. Peter would become one of the intimate three of the twelve. Peter, the one that was ride or die for Jesus, who was a fisher, and God called him to be a fisher of men. But can I tell you that fishing in the context of what we see isn't a hobby. Jesus didn't call us to be fishers of men as a hobbyist. He called us to be hunters of the lost. 
to bring them back into intimacy with the Father through the blood of Jesus and the gospel of Jesus Christ. But this man, Peter, tells Jesus, I'm right or die. He's like, I'll never leave you or forsake you. Right? When Jesus asked the disciples, who do people say that I am? Everybody else got it wrong. And Peter's like, you're the Messiah. You're the son of the most high God. And Jesus is like, man, man didn't show you this. My father in heaven showed you this. And Peter was down for Jesus. Jesus was in the garden. And, 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 and Peter was that guy that took out the, 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 the switchblade to cut off the, the ear of the, of the guard that came to arrest Jesus because he was down for Jesus. And there was a time that Jesus told Peter, hey, listen, I'm going to die, but I'm going to raise again on the third day. And Peter was like, loudmouth Peter's like, nah. Not so. I'll never let you die. And, and Jesus is like, you know, this rooster is going to crow three times and you're going to deny me three times. And he's like, I'll never deny you. He's like, you're going to deny me. This is Peter, the one the only guy that has ever walked on water with Jesus. The only one to ever get out of the boat with Jesus. And when Jesus was arrested and he was being crucified, Peter fails Jesus. Peter denies Jesus. Jesus dies. And Peter runs and he hides. And he's forced into hiding because of his shame. Just like Adam and Eve. And I love the story of Jesus restoring Peter because when, when Jesus resurrected from the dead, you know what, 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 what? One of the first things that Jesus did, he went looking for Peter. He didn't leave him in the darkness of his sin. He didn't beat him up over his mistake. Like people are, Jesus is on the shore. He's cooking fish. He's cooking up a fire. Let's take him some fish. And they get back and Jesus is like, Hey Pete, you love me? No, I do. Feed my sheep. Peter, you love me? Jesus, you know that I love you. Feed my sheep. Come on. Jesus repeated the question three times because Peter denied him three times. He says, Peter, do you love me? And Simon of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt that Jesus asked the question the third time and he said, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said, then feed my sheep. And God restores a broken apostle, a broken disciple, a broken son of heaven back into the call and the purpose of God. And I, I don't know who this is for tonight, but maybe you're in this place and you've made some really bad decisions. You've made some really bad choices and you find yourself ashamed of your decisions. You find yourself ashamed of your choices and you've ran and forced yourself into hiding because that's what your sin has done. But I'm here to tell you that Jesus is in the house tonight and he is in the business of restoring fallen leaders. He is in the business of restoring fallen Christians. He is in the business of restoring falling Come on, somebody. God loves you so much. He's not willing to leave you alone in your shame. But he takes the initiative to reach you with his grace and restore you back to himself. And then in Acts chapter 2. In Acts chapter 2. You know the story. We're Pentecostals. The Spirit of God is poured out. And everybody's like, hey. They got to be drunk. We hear all kinds of languages glorifying God in our, in our language, over 14 different dialects. And who walks out of that room with boldness? Who remembers? Feed my sheep. Feed my sheep. 
feed my sheep. I don't know what pastor's in this place and you feel like you've lost the call, but God's telling you, feed his sheep. Feed the sheep. Go after the one that has left the 99. Bring him back to the fold and feed his sheep. Peter stands up with boldness and says, we're not drunk, homie. He says this, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus for the remission of your sins and you receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Intimacy. For the promise is to you and your children and to all who are far off, as many as the Lord will call. There is a process of restoration and I hope I'm not going over my time. I just, I just want to end with this. Second Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14. You want to know what the process of restoration is? There is a process to restoration and you can't skip one step. Are you hearing me? There are many of you that are in this place and the enemy has lied to you and you feel like I can't do anything from God, but God is going to restore you back tonight to the call because the gifts and the call of God are irrevocable over your life. And Jesus says, or, 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 or God says through the word of God in 2 Chronicles 7, 14, if my people, you have to make a decision. If, it's your choice. It's not going to force it on you. It's not going to force it on you. If my people who are called by my name, come on, reach conference. Is there anybody in the house that's called by the name above all names? If my people who are called by my name would humble themselves, the very first step of restoration is you got to humble yourself. You got to go back and talk to your pastor and tell him you're sorry for what you've done. You got to go back to your wife and tell her that you're sorry for what you've done. You got to go back to your husband and tell him that you're sorry for what you've done. I'm going to humble myself. But that's not enough. It's not enough that you're sorry. I know a lot of guys and a lot of girls that are sorry, but there's no transformation in their lives. I know a lot of people that go to church, or oh, I'm sorry for what I've done. No, you're not, because if you were sorry, you would have repented. So the first step of restoration is humility. My people who are called by my name would humble themselves. Nextly, the second step of restoration is intimacy. Pray and seek my face. God made a way through the blood of Jesus. So you got to pray and seek God's face. So humility, intimacy. Thirdly, repentance. Turn from their wicked ways. Doesn't matter if you pray and you don't repent. Doesn't matter if you say I'm sorry and you don't repent. Doesn't matter if you say I'll never do it again and you never repent. If my people who are called by my name would humble themselves, pray and seek my face, repent and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and I will restore their land. There is a process to restoration. If I could have every head bowed and every eye closed in reverence to God, maybe you're in this place tonight and you don't know Jesus Christ, if I can have the house lights up just real, real briefly so that I could see any hands that would go up because we want to honor the presence of God that's in this room tonight. But maybe you're here and you don't know Jesus. You might go to church, but it's religious. You're going through the motions. I go to church because it's good for my family. I go to church because I like the vibe. I go to church because my friends go there. I go to church because I like the music. No, we want to go to church because that's where the presence of God is. And maybe you're in this place and you don't have an intimate relationship with Jesus. Jesus didn't die on the cross and resurrect from the dead to give you religion. He died and resurrected from the dead to give you intimacy with himself in relationship. And maybe you're here tonight and you don't have a relationship with God. Or maybe you're in a backslidden condition. You are far from God. You know it and God knows it. There is nothing to hide. Tonight you say, I'm coming home. That's you. Stand to your feet real quickly. Real quickly. I got to come home tonight. Real quickly. Stand to your feet. I got to come home tonight. I got to come home tonight. I need Jesus. I need Jesus. Come on. You're not saved. You don't know Christ. 
in an intimate way. You don't have a personal relationship with God. You've never been born again. Or maybe you have been and you've fallen away from God and you're in a backslidden condition. Tonight, but tonight you're making a declaration that I'm going to humble myself. I'm going to pray and seek his face. I'm going to repent from his sin and I'm going to, from my sin and I'm going to pray that the Holy Spirit restores me in this place tonight. That's you. Raise your hand quickly, quickly. Stand to your feet. Stand to your feet. You raise your hand. Stand to your feet. You mean that. You mean that. Yes, 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 yes. Hands going up all over this place. Yes, yes, yes. I want you to do one more thing with me. I want you to get out of your seat and I want you to come to this altar tonight because I believe that the Holy Spirit is going to meet you at this altar tonight and you're going to leave restored by the power of the Holy Spirit. Come on, you're not going to be here by yourself. I promise you. You're not going to be here by yourself. Come on, you've messed up. Come on, you've messed up and you know that you've messed up. You feel like you're far from God. You're so far from God. You're so far from God, but tonight I need to come home. I want to come home to God. I want to come home to the call. I want to come home to my family. I want to come home to my church. That's you. Come on, I want you to get out of your seat. I want you to come to this altar, and I want you to find a place to pray. We're going to sing, and we're going to pray, and we're going to lay hands, and we're going to believe God together. Come on, you're a fallen leader. You've messed up, but tonight you're going to respond to the upward call of God over your life. Come on, get out of your seat. Come and find a place to pray. We're going to make room. We're going to make room. Come on. Thanks so much for listening to this message from Reach Church Paramount. To stay connected with us, follow us on Instagram or Facebook at Reach Paramount. To give and support this podcast and ministry, visit our website at reachparamount.com give.